Well, good morning, church. It is Super Bowl Sunday. So uh, I was actually looking through my Bible this last week, trying to figure out who to root for in the big game tonight. And did you know that the word patriot never appears in the Bible? <laughs> Interesting. Now, no big surprise there, though. The Bible does mention rams a number of times. Uh, mostly, though, it's talking about sacrificial lambs being led to the slaughter. So... <laughs> Yes, uh, all we can really do is hope for the best and pray for Tom Brady's retirement. Uh, if you're a football fan like me, you've probably heard the old saying, defense wins championships, right? And that may be true on the football field, but that's not actually true at all in the Christian life. I think there is a football saying, though, that applies to us a little bit better. You can finish this if you've heard it before. The best defense is a... Yeah, the best defense is a good offense. That's right. And well, like Steve said, we've been spending the last four weeks together going through uh, the, just the first two chapters of the book of Acts. And we have seen uh, when Jesus ascends to heaven, his followers get together, they're praying, the Holy Spirit comes on them, he fills them, they start speaking the good news of Jesus. 3,000 people are baptized. And then this little community of Jesus followers called the church starts to live in a way that is just radically different than anybody else around them. And we believe that that's what God's calling us to do as well. And we believe that when the Holy Spirit comes on you and in you, he wants to move you. That's why we're calling this series Move. And we've seen that the Spirit wants to move us from uncertain to empowered and from bystander to disciple. And today we're going to see that the Holy Spirit wants to move us from defense to offense. Because if you look through the book of Acts, you're going to see pretty quickly that the church was not playing defense. They weren't waiting for the lost to come to them. No, they were playing offense. They were pushing the ball deep into the heart of enemy territory. They were taking the good news of Jesus Christ to everybody around them. But unfortunately, in our day and age today, I think Christians are more known for playing defense. And unfortunately, I think we're more known for what we're against rather than what we're for. But we believe that the Holy Spirit is still calling us to play offense today because the Holy Spirit's moving and our job is just to keep up. So open your Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapters 3 and 4. Acts chapters 3 and 4. Let me set the scene for us. This is just a few days after the Holy Spirit came on the believers. 3,000 people were baptized on the day of Pentecost. And then Peter and John, the apostles, they're just going about their everyday routine, doing their normal thing. They're on their way up to the, to the temple to pray one afternoon when all of a sudden, just minding their own business, this happens, verses 1 and 2. It says, one day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. So there's this crippled guy. The text says he's been lame from birth. Now I've been told that I'm lame from birth, but I think it's talking about something a little bit different here. This guy's been a cripple his whole life. The text later says he's over 40 years old. So for 40 years, this guy can't walk. And actually, because of his disability, he's not even allowed to go into the temple to worship. He has to sit outside. But every day, he comes and he sits outside the temple to beg from those going inside. Pretty smart. He figures people on their way to worship might be a little more generous. So the guy may be lame, but he's not dumb. Verses 3 through 5. It says, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention expecting something from them. Verse six, then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. And the beggar's probably thinking, classic, I've heard this one before, sorry pal, don't have any money, I'm working on a minister's salary here. But 
just before the beggar gets to turn his attention to somebody else, Peter keeps talking, and the beggar gets a whole lot more than he bargained for. Look at what Peter says. He says, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Now, if I'm that beggar, I'm thinking, walk? Are you kidding me? Do you, do you see my legs right now? What is this, some kind of a sick joke? But look what happens here in verse 7. Taking him by the right hand, Peter basically just grabs the guy, yanks the guy up. It says, he jumped to his feet and began to walk. His, it says, his feet and his ankles became strong. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. So suddenly this guy's twisted ankles straighten out. His shriveled legs become strong. He's healed. All of a sudden he can walk. It's a miracle. And for the first time, probably in his whole life, he gets to go into the temple, the one he sat outside for decades begging. And, and he, I mean, forget no running in church, right? This guy's just bouncing off the walls, praising God, making quite a scene. Look at what happens here. Verses 9 and 10 says, when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, this guy, he's used to being a spectacle. He's been a spectacle his whole life. He's used to people staring at him. That's how he made his living. And so now he's causing quite a scene. A crowd is gathering. They're all staring, but he doesn't even care. Let them stare. Then Peter, of course, being a preacher, says, hey, a crowd. Let's have church. <laughs> So he launches into a sermon, and look at what he says. This is bold. Verses 11 through 20. While the man held on to Peter and John, and all the people were astonished, and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? So Peter's quick to point out, hey, this isn't us, this is God. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Peter's saying, hey, you know the God we worship, the God we grew up learning about, the God who created the world, and the God who called Abraham, and the God who rescued us from Egypt, and the God who gave us this land, and the God who made us into a great nation. That God, well, he's the very same God that healed this cripple. Oh, by the way, he's also the God who sent Jesus, and you killed him. Look at what he says here. He says, you handed him over to be killed, and you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. Ouch. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you all can see. So Peter makes it really clear right from the get-go here that this man is healed through faith. It's not because he was super good that he got healed. It's not because the apostles were super holy. It was through faith. And that's our story too, right? We were saved by faith. Not because we were super special or better than any other people. It's by faith. The, the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, For it is by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, Peter goes on, and he keeps telling people uh, about they, how they need to put their faith in Jesus, too. And they need to repent. They need to turn to God. And everybody's just loving this sermon. Everybody, that is except for the Jewish leaders. They're intimidated. 
by this new thing that's going on that's a little out of their control. And so what do they do? They decide to play defense. They play defense. They throw Peter and John in jail just for preaching, for healing this guy. I've heard it said that if you try to be the light of the world, you're going to attract a few bugs. <laughs> now, we know that's true. But the fact of the matter is that when God's the one making the play calls and his people are playing offense, there's no defense in the world that can stop us. Hey, you can arrest the messengers, but you can't arrest the message. And you, you can lock up the apostles. You can lock us up. You can do whatever you want to us, but you can't lock up the Holy Spirit. You can try to play defense as you want, but you can't stop this. Look at what happens. I love it. They try to stop it, but it doesn't work. Acts chapter 4, verse 4. It says, but many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. You can't stop this. So the religious leaders, they dragged Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was like this Jewish version of Congress and the Supreme Court all rolled into one. 71 seats full of elite, educated, rich, powerful people who, I mean, this is the same court who condemned Jesus. This is the same court that arranged the crucifixion. And here they are intimidating these two little country bumpkins right in the middle, Peter and John. And they're, they're questioning them. They're throwing everything at them, trying to scare Peter and John. And you'd think they would be scared. They know what this court can do. But look at this. They're not intimidated in the least. Verses 7 through 13 of chapter 4. It says, They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed. So Peter's basically saying, hold up, uh, the only thing I'm guilty of is doing a good deed and helping out a cripple. But while we're on the subject, you guys are guilty of a lot more than that. Peter says, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. <laughs> Man, I bet their hearts sunk when they heard that name. Jesus? I thought we killed him. Man, we can't get rid of this guy. Peter says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. I hope you believe that, church. Jesus is the only way to heaven. And the Jewish, leaders are, the Jewish leaders, they're flabbergasted at this. They don't know what to do. This is one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible. Look at this. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. I want people to say that about us, church. Nah, they're not that special. They're not that cool. They're not that clever. But man, they've been with Jesus. And when, when, when Peter gets done talking here, well, the Sanhedrin, they're caught between a rock and a hard place. They don't know what to do. On the one hand, if they just let Peter and John go, then they're going to keep preaching and spreading this thing. But on the other hand, if they punish Peter and John, well, then the people are going to revolt because everybody saw this miracle they did. There's no denying that. Look at verses 14 through 21. It says, but since they could see the man who'd been healed standing, He's standing there with them. There was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign, and we can't deny it. 
But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. So basically, the Sanhedrin just says, well, uh, we, we can't actually do anything to you, but stop it because we say so. And Peter and John are like, ah, no. <laughs> Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or him? You be the judges, but as for us, we cannot help but speaking about what we have seen and heard. So after further threats, they let them go. So Peter and John, they waltz out of the court and they go back and they tell the other believers about everything that happens. And when the other believers hear about all this persecution, the first thing they do is they get together and they pray. They tell God about what's going on and they ask him to do something about it. And here's what they pray. Look at what they ask God to do. Chapter four, verses 29 through 31. They say, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. There's one big thing I want to draw out of this text today. Peter and John, through the Holy Spirit, were playing offense, not defense. They were just going about their normal everyday routine when they saw this cripple. And instead of seeing an interruption, they saw an opportunity. And I believe that those kinds of opportunities are all around each and every one of us every day. In the house you live in, in the neighborhood you're in, in the apartment complex, the barista at the coffee shop, the waitress at the restaurant, the person in the cubicle next to yours, the coach of your kid's team, your extended family, whatever it is, I believe that for you the opportunities to play offense with the Holy Spirit are there. And the Holy Spirit wants to use us to seize those opportunities and to pursue them. So I want to draw out three quick ways today that we can play offense, all right? Here's the first one. Number one, request what you lack. Request what you lack. And specifically, request boldness. Do you remember what Peter and John are doing at the beginning to get this whole situation started? They're heading to the temple to pray. And what do they do after they get released? They go pray. And what do they pray for? They pray for boldness. They don't pray for God to take the trouble away or for God to keep them safe. They pray for the boldness to meet the opportunities that God places in front of them. They request what they lack. And they're not the only ones. We're not the only ones who have to request what we lack and request boldness. All kinds of people have to do this. Even the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote half of the New Testament, had to pray for boldness. Look at what he says in, or in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19. Paul asks the church to pray for boldness. He says, and pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right words so that I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. So Paul, even Paul, had to request what he lacked. He asked for the church to pray for him to be bold, and God answered that prayer. We see Paul all throughout the book of Acts being bold. He's opposed by Jews and Gentiles. He's in and out of jail. He's on death row. He gets beaten up. He gets drugged on trial before these Roman officials. Eventually, he gets put on house arrest in Rome while he waits to go before Caesar himself. And despite all that opposition, it doesn't stop him from being bold. The last thing we hear about the apostle Paul in the book of Acts is when he's on house arrest in Rome, it says this. Acts chapter 28, verse 31. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. 
This is a man who requested what he lacked, and God answered. God made him bold. Paul one time wrote a letter to the church in Rome, and in that letter, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he wrote this. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's one of the most common prayers that I pray for myself, as I pray, Lord, make me not ashamed of your gospel. Like that. That's my prayer for us today, church. Lord, make us not ashamed of your gospel. Make us bold. Because can I be honest with you guys this morning? Uh, Sometimes boldness is something that I lack. I mean, sure, I'm a preacher, but I'm also a person. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm kind of an introvert by nature. Uh, my worst fear is conflict. I hate confrontation. And in my weakest moments, I can be soft. I can be a pushover. I can be a yes man. And it's really hard for me sometimes to take that conversational leap and to bring Jesus into a conversation. You all know the feeling I'm talking about? It feels crazy, doesn't it? I don't quite know what to say. And some of you feel that. You do. Because being bold and naturally having spiritual conversations with unbelievers just really might not be in your personality. You might say, well, I'm not the kind of person to pry. I don't want to impose. I don't want to invade somebody's privacy. And if you're like me, sometimes that's the excuse you use so you don't have to do it. Can I encourage you this morning? Boldness is not a personality trait. Boldness is you being willing to speak. In the power of the Holy Spirit, who Jesus is and what he has done in your life. And for a lot of you, that sounds crazy to have conversations like that. It sounds scary. It sounds difficult. It sounds downright insane. And if you're like me, sometimes when you see that open door in a conversation to talk about Jesus and you kind of know that the Holy Spirit's just nudging you to walk through that door, you know that feeling, right? And, And if you're like me, when that happens, sometimes you feel a little bit like this kid as he tries to psych himself up to jump into the pool. Okay, I'll do it. (laughs) anybody else feel that When you're talking to somebody and you're, you're standing there on the edge and you know the Holy Spirit's nudging you to jump. But it, it just, it takes a lot of guts to take that conversational leap, right? So, so we're going with the kind of football theme today, right? From defense to offense, that whole thing. So bear with me. I want to use what that kid said as kind of a pregame pep talk. That all right? He says, I'm brave, I'm strong, but... Look at me, let's be honest, I'm not that brave, I'm not that strong, so I'm gonna modify what he says a little bit, okay? I want you to repeat after me. God's big, God's strong, God makes me strong. Y'all sound like you're half asleep. We ain't gonna win many games like that, all right? Let's try this again with a little more energy, all right? God's big, God's strong, God makes me strong. And then you jump in. We go for it. Because I believe that the Holy Spirit has the power to fill you with boldness to take that conversational leap and speak about Jesus. Request what you lack. That's the first way to play offense. Here's the second thing. Request what you lack and give what you have. Give what you have. Uh, This beggar, he sees Peter and John and he asks them for money. And Peter and John say, well, silver and gold I don't have. Sorry, I'm a preacher, not a banker. And he says, but what I have, I give you. And God did something supernatural with that. 
And I believe that if you live with that same attitude, God can do something great and supernatural in your life too. When you live with that attitude of what I have, I give you. And if we're being honest today, some of you are not giving, you're not serving, you're not building those kinds of relationships because you're making excuses about what you don't have. Oh, I don't have enough time to invite somebody over. I don't have enough knowledge to have a spiritual conversation with somebody. I don't have enough money or a big enough or nice enough or clean enough house to be hospitable. Listen, God's not asking you about what you don't have. He's asking you to use what you do have. And I believe that each and every one of you have something that God wants to use. Can you cook? Make a meal. Take a meal to a shut-in. Can you not cook like me? Order a pizza, right? It's not that big of a deal. <laughs> do you have an extra seat in your car? Start a carpool to work or to school. Build relationships with somebody. Do your kids play sports? Get to know the coaches and some of the other parents. Build intentional relationships there. Uh, do you have life experience? Invest in a family younger than you. Bring them along and, and serve as a mentor or a friend to them. Each and every one of you in this room, I believe with my whole heart, that God has given you a relationship or a skill or a resource, an opportunity, an amount of time. He's given you something right where you are right now in your phase of life that he wants you to use for his glory, for the expansion of his kingdom. He wants you to give what you have. In the early years of Christianity, the church grew rapidly because the Christians just gave what they had. They just loved differently than other people loved. And throughout the empire, these little communities where the Christians live, all of a sudden, people actually started to live longer and healthier lives in those communities. Because when people in those communities suffered from tragedy or sickness or poverty, the Christians cared for them. Christians didn't just love each other radically, they loved their neighbors radically. In fact, in the year 251 AD, a plague started sweeping across the Greco-Roman Empire. And everybody was freaking out because about a century earlier, another plague had come and wiped out about a third of the population. So when this plague comes, everybody who had enough money, they got out of the city and they went to the countryside to try to run away from it. But the people who didn't have enough money to move, they had to stay there in the city. And so the streets in the city became packed with people who were infected by the plague, people who'd been kicked out by their own families, people who had nowhere to turn, nowhere else to go. And then along came the Christians who decided to give what they had. And the Christians didn't run away from the disease like everybody else. They walked right into the middle of it. And they welcomed the sick and the dying into their homes and they cared for them and they saved countless lives. And many of them lost their lives too. But it was this radical kind of give what I have love that took the whole empire off guard. In fact, uh, the Roman Emperor Julian, um, this Christian love was so striking that when the Roman Emperor Julian was trying to restore the influence of pagan religion on the empire, he instructed the pagan priests to follow the example of the Christians. The pagan Emperor Julian, he writes this. He says, why then do we think that it is enough? Why do we not observe that it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done the most to increase atheism? That's his term for Christianity. In other words, he's saying, why can't we see that it's because they love people really well? That's, that's why they're growing. And Julian goes on. He says, I believe that we ought really and truly to practice every one of these virtues, for it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans, he's talking about the Christians there, support not only their poor, but ours as well? 
All men see that our people lack aid from us. In other words, the Christians weren't known for playing defense. They were known for playing offense, for giving what they had to extend the love of Christ to a hurting world. So wherever you are today, whatever you have, give it. What I have, I give you. Use it to bring glory to Jesus and to bring help and healing to somebody else. And that's intimidating. It might mean rearranging your schedule and your finances. We don't always know how to do it. But before you do it, you're going to give yourself a little pep talk. You ready? God's big. God's, big. God's, strong. God's strong. God makes me strong. And then you jump in, okay? So we play offense by requesting what we lack, giving what we have, and here's the third thing. Speak what you've seen. Speak what you've seen. The time will come for you to speak up and to share the good news of Jesus. And when you do, it doesn't have to be fancy. You don't have to be a theologian with a Bible degree. Just share who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. Peter and John said it. They said, sorry, we can't help but speak about what we've seen. And Peter and John, they, they weren't the world's greatest scholars, and that's what made what they said so remarkable. The court says, well, these are just unschooled, ordinary men. But it says, they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Look, church, the world does not know what to do with somebody whose life has been transformed radically just by being with Jesus. And you may not think your story is all that cool. You may not have some kind of dramatic conversion tale my story's boring, okay? I've been, a, I've been a church kid all my life. <laughs> but really, my story's the same as anybody else's. I was purposeless and lost and stuck and addicted and enslaved and deserving of the fires of hell. I messed my life up. I sinned against the living God. I was a sinner. I was a sinner. But I recognized my sin and I repented and I was baptized because I believe in Jesus Christ. I chose to believe that Jesus Christ came down, son of God, became son of man, fully God, fully man. That he lived a perfect life here on earth, the life that I could not live. And that he died the death that I deserved. He took the punishment that I deserved and his blood on the cross is the blood that washes me clean. And I believe that he was really dead, that he was really buried, and on the third day, he really rose again to new life, and that he ascended to the Father, and he is right now alive, seated at the right hand of God, and he will return and make all things new, and that right now, he is indwelling me with his Holy Spirit, and he is making me new day by day. That's my story, and I hope it's your story, too. You can fill in the details of whatever it looked like in your life, but then you share that story, because that's what gave credibility to what Peter was saying. It wasn't because he had all the right perfect words and knew all the right answers. It was because the court saw the lame man standing. They saw that cripple walking. And they could not deny that that man had been transformed by the power of Jesus. There's a guy named Warren Wearsby, and he says, The best defense of the Christian faith is a changed life. I happen to think it's the best offense, too. Just share how Jesus has changed your life, and people can't deny it. Speak what you've seen. So practically, I mean, if you've never practiced sharing your story or your testimony or how God is working in your life, I would encourage you to practice so that you're ready when that conversational opportunity comes up. Practice sharing your story. Something I've done, an exercise that was helpful for me is just drawing out your story. Plot it out like a graph, like a chart. Mark out the high points of your life and the, and the low points. Draw out the trajectory of your life and then look back over and figure out how was God moving through all that to bring me here to where I am? Draw out your story. That was a great exercise. I hope it could be helpful for you.
Maybe you could practice sharing your story with people that you trust so that you can be ready when an opportunity comes. We did this in our life group. We shared our stories in our life groups. And it was the best thing we've ever done as a group. Got us to know each other better and it got us ready for those opportunities when they came. Whatever it is for you, find a way to be prepared to share your story and who Jesus is when the time comes, to boldly take a leap of faith in a conversation and to share what Jesus has done, to speak what you've seen. And you're not gonna have the perfect words and you're gonna be nervous and you're gonna be unsure, but you're also gonna give yourself a little pep talk. You ready? God's big. God's strong. God's strong. God makes me strong. God makes me strong. And then you jump in. The Holy Spirit is empowering us and he wants us to be a church that plays offense. He wants us to be people that request what we lack and give what we have and speak what we've seen. Because that's what Jesus did for us. He saw us there, broken, unable to heal ourselves, without a leg to stand on, cast out of the house of God, crippled by our own sin. And he didn't just walk on by. No, he looked at us and he came to us and he gave everything he had. And now we're healed. And that's the good news. So let's go share it. You pray with me? Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for seeing us in all of our sin and all of our brokenness. And choosing to play offense. Choosing to come and to give everything you had to heal us. Thank you, thank you. And Jesus, we come to you today and we confess that sometimes we like boldness. So our request is that you would fill us with your boldness, fill us with your Holy Spirit power, with the courage to speak. Show each and every one of us in this room today, Jesus, how you want us to use what we have for your glory. And it is my prayer today that for each person in this room, myself included, you would give us an opportunity this week to share the good news of Jesus, to share what he's done in his life and who he is. And so, Father, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with power. And when that opportunity comes, help us to seize it. We love you so much. We don't want to be ashamed of your gospel. And we want to be able to say, like Peter and John did, that we can't help but speak about what we've seen because you're awesome and we love you. It's in Jesus' powerful name that we pray. Amen.